Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, this children's book, Cha-Cha and the Picnic Basket, as told by James Stevens, age four, and the author is Lisa Stevens, mom or mum, because Lisa lives in Australia. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Good to have you with us, and uh, this is going to be on Ex Libris On Air Grateful that you're here with this great new children's story because Cha-Cha is a beautiful golden Labrador puppy in this book. How did this all come about? Well, it started because um, Cha-Cha has been a much-loved and very valued member of our family for many years now. Cha-Cha is actually going on 13 years old as we speak and is still... um, you know, very much alive and, uh, you know, it still embraces his inner pup but is obviously getting older and it started me thinking about what a wonderful member of our family has, he has been and in particular what a fantastic companion to our two sons, Harry and James. He came into our family when Harry was four years old and James was three years old. So Harry and James and Cha-Cha have literally grown up together and it's just been beautiful watching it. Well, this is a story about, of course, this great relationship of Cha-Cha and James and Harry. And, of course, they hang out together. They go to the park. Uh, My goodness, Cha-Cha disappears. So it's a little drama in it. (laughs) I'm sure anyone that's had a puppy has had that puppy run off or disappear at some stage but you know Labradors being Labradors if if they're going to disappear anywhere it would normally be where food is so (laughs) you know it's a common anyone that's a Labrador owner would understand the connection (laughs) between a Labrador disappearing and food you know it was just ironic that uh, he would end up in a picnic basket. Why did you decide to write the book in the first person from the perspective of James when he was four years old? Um, Because the relationship between the boys has been just so important and so significant. Um, I felt that it was better to write it from their perspective because that's how I watched it. I watched it from their perspective. And, you know, I still remember the day that we actually bought Cha-Cha home for the first time. And, you know, with two little boys, it was all about, you know, you bring a box into the house and it was all about it being a present for them all the time. I mean, everything was always about them as everything is always about with children. Oh, is it a present for us? And um, and from that moment, it was about them. It was their dog. It became their friend, it was their companion, it grew up with them and um, so James in this case, but Harry in subsequent books, was the best person or were the best people to tell the story. 
Now, of course, with all children's books, usually there's pictures and there's great illustrations by Declan Smith. Tell us how that came about. He's relatively a young person. Yeah, well, that came about. I, I had started with some other illustrators and, um, oh, I don't know, you know, just I guess we weren't connecting or with everything in this process, I'd pass it by the boys, Harry and James, who are now 16 and 15 years old. And I'd sort of say, I'd show them illustrations that other people had done and said, and say, what do you think? Do you think this is good? You know, um, and they'd sort of give mixed reviews or I wasn't always happy. You know, we went through about three different illustrators and in the end, out of desperation, I actually went to a local high school in Ashgrove in Brisbane, Australia, where we live, and I saw the head of art there, and I said, I showed her the manuscripts for the books, and I said to her, do you think that there is any student, this is a high school, do you think there is any student that uh, you think might be capable of illustrating these books? And she said to me, and I'll never forget, she said, um... Lisa, you know, this is a huge amount of work. It's just a massive amount of work. And there, there is one boy, but there's only one. And that was Declan Smith. And he, this is last year in about October, and he was going into his final exams in grade 12 in senior before he goes off to university. And he... He met with me and said, yes, he was interested, but he couldn't do anything at the time because he had his final exams. And then he had to go off to what we call in Australia Schoolies Week, a week where every all, all the various grade 12 students from all over Australia actually congregate on the Gold Coast for a week and celebrate the fact that they've just finished school. So he had important things to do. But when he came back, he we met and he said, yes, I'd really appreciate the opportunity to um, try and illustrate your books. So after that, he illustrated the first two books, Cha-Cha and the Picnic Basket and Cha-Cha and the Great Cricket Match. Ah, and uh, did a fantastic job. And he's only 17 now. My goodness. And I didn't realize so, there was a second book already completed. Yes, yes. They were done together and the first two books have been launched in Australia um, oh, about 10 days ago. It's, it's always, uh, I think it's a, quite a connection with young people, with children, when you rhyme everything. Uh, was that difficult to do for you? I mean, it, or why did you decide to make it rhyme? Oh, to make it rhyme, because when Harry and James were little and my husband and I were reading books to them, we read to them from the time that, they were they were born. Um, they'd be lying in their cots, and we'd read to them, and you know, and we read to them right up until they were reading for themselves, obviously. But um, they enjoyed books with rhyme, and I can remember enjoying books with rhyme as well. I loved, you know, growing up, I loved Dr. Seuss books, you know, The Cat in the Hat and things like that. And I also grew up with uh, Winnie the Pooh. And even though Winnie the Pooh didn't rhyme, um, he had um, uh, the poetry when um, 
in his book when we were very young and things like that. I loved rhyme. And my boys loved rhyme. They loved Harry McClary, which um, was a, is written by a New Zealand author. And that was all in rhyme. And kids, from my experience as a teacher, I know that kids love rhyme because it makes them, uh, you know, it's easy for retention for them. Um, it makes them identify new words and it actually helps them to read. So, and even before they can read a book, they can remember the rhyme and they can pretend they're reading the book. They know when to turn the pages and it, it just makes them feel wonderful about reading. Well, you've already pointed out, of course, that this book is much more than a book about a dog. Uh, you know, this great relationship with these two little boys and, and uh, the importance of that. Uh, but it also uh, has other kinds of messages in the story. Uh, give us some of those other messages that you're trying to leave with the readers. Well, we have to keep in mind that the target audience to these books is very young kids. So really, you know, one, two seven or at a stretch maybe one to eight um, and so the messages are meant to be very simple but very clear and in the first uh, in the first book uh, when Char Char sort of runs off when he gets to the park and he's very excited and he runs off to explore the new smells around um, there's one page where James or Harry I can't remember in it now uh, says um, uh, you don't leave your friends and run off and hide. Mama was taught us to stay by her side. And the message is that that's what you do, you know, in a busy shopping centre or in a street. You don't run away from your friends or run away from mum because that's where you belong. You're only little and you need someone to look after you. So it's messages like that. But it's also about friendship. It's also about the fact that... Um, you know, even at a very early age, when you've got a new member of the family, whether that be a pet or whether it be another, you know, a baby that's brought into the family, the dynamics change within a family. And um, we all have to assume different responsibilities. Our position within that family changes. So in this book, you know, Harry and James had to accept some responsibility and they had to understand um, some of the traits of Labradors and dogs and pets in general and that, you know, they they have to watch out for their new friend and um, they in in some ways they have to protect their new friend from him himself because he you know, anyone that has a Labrador or la loves Labradors or no Labradors, most people do, know that a Labrador will eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and there is no off button. So we have to protect them from themselves because the last thing we need are very obese dogs because that comes with it all sorts of health issues. So little kids, even kids that are four and five, still need to understand that they can't give their dog that piece of cake or that bar of chocolate because it's not good for their dog. Now give us the title of the two books that are out right now. So the first one is when um, Cha-Cha comes home as a puppy and that's Cha-Cha in the picnic basket. And the second book is uh, when Cha-Cha is one year old and that's Cha-Cha in the great cricket match. Sounds like there's more books to come. 
Um, yeah, well, there is. Ex-Libris came back to us after, or back to me after we'd uh, produced the first two books, and they were so happy with the stories and the character of Cha-Cha and, of course, Declan's wonderful illustrations that they've t- asked us to turn it into an 8 to 10 book series, which we've now agreed to do. 8 to 10 books, fantastic. Well, that's what's great about these kinds of uh, characters that you can follow along with them. And, of course, this one, this beautiful Labrador, golden Labrador, Cha-Cha, and James and Harry. Tell us how to get your book, Lisa. Well, Cha-Cha actually has a website, and (laughs) on the website there's all sorts of things. There's games for kids, and there's photos of Cha-Cha as well, and there's updates about what Cha-Cha is doing at any given time, and that's probably the best place to go and get my book. So the web address is www.cha.com. Cha-Cha and Friends, so it's C-H-A-C-H-A and A-N-D, friends.com. And you can buy the book direct on that. Fantastic. Cha-Cha and Friends.com. I just opened it up, and there it is. Oh, what a beautiful photo. <laughs> Great photo gallery. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Well, that's just, that's just uh, using... All the latest technology to go along with this great story to make it even bigger than just a book for children. So congratulations. Thank you very much, yes. No, well, the idea is that kids from all over the world can um, follow Cha-Cha's adventures, and there's a song on there, Cha-Cha's song on there. And, um, yeah, I mean, for any children out there that don't have a dog and would love a dog, um, Cha-Cha would be very happy to be adopted by them too and <laughs> they can sort of be part of the whole thing. Well, that's, that's a great, very uh, ingenious uh, way to tie it all together. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was lovely speaking to you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. Devan will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. 
Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature, and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Singapore in Asia, celebrating globalization and an emerging postmodern Asian civilization. And the authors are TKT and Edward SWT. And TK joins us now on Ex Libris on air. Hello, TK. Hello, nice to be with you. Great to have you with us uh, all the way from Singapore. And uh, that is the focus, obviously, the title, Singapore in Asia. You're going to give us your view of the world from uh, your unique position there. Your book, you say, is unique in that it explores the premise that the economic achievement of a people is related to its quality of civilization. And of course, that deals with the intellect deals with the culture, and of course there's all kinds of uh, economic theories here, but we all know the rapid rise of East Asia and what's happened and uh, the competitiveness uh, a lot more with Western civilization, especially in the techno-science area. So you've seen it all, uh, especially in how long have you lived there? Well, uh, 30 to 40 years in Singapore, I think, but it's only in more recent years, you see, that there has been uh, great progress uh, in this area. And I mean, we have, Singapore is becoming uh, a kind of a, well, I mean, it, it has passed through a little bit of industrialization, but uh, I think it hopes to move to the next stage, you know, which is a knowledge-based economy. Right, it's only China. You know the countries, the the you know the, the developed countries like the United States and the parts of Europe, you know, to have uh, this knowledge-based economy. Well, it takes a lot of learning. Knowledge is power, and that's what you're seeing there. You're just seeing this growth in knowledge, and then it's turning into uh, pro productivity, especially in the in the high-tech field. Yes, that's right. You know, of course, there's been a lot of help from uh, from the Westerners, from the Americans, and uh, from the Europeans because they have uh, all invested in Singapore. You know, I mean, uh, almost half of our economy you know, depends on uh, foreign investment. We've got uh, multinationals, you know, not only from Europe but from Japan and elsewhere. So they contribute considerably to our economy. I think without this foreign national, this uh, this big companies that come to Singapore, there would be no global Singapore <laughs> because we are a tiny little country. Uh -huh. And uh, well, uh, 
it was founded, you know, Singapore was founded in 1819 by the East India Company, an official called Stamford Raffles came down to Singapore, they had earlier on uh, colonized Penang. You know. And of course, before that, Malacca, you know, initially under the Portuguese and later the Dutch. So it was uh, in the early part of the 19th century, the East India Company were thinking of expanding to China, you see. And to do that, they had to go to come east, you see. And the, the Straits of Malacca, that is the narrow straits, which is the shortest route you know, between India and China. And uh, so they founded the Straits of uh, the Straits Settlements, Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. And eventually, Singapore grew up to be the British main port, you know, the main port. And it grew up to be quite a good, busy city port, you know, during the rule of the British. Because uh, during this period, the, the British went on to colonize Malaya and brought rubber, you know, there was also tin to be mined. And Singapore was a big port from which these products were exported, you see. So Singapore grew to be quite an important port for the British Empire in this part of the world. And, and, you, uh, what? Yeah, and, and you look at this from a unique point of view because of your academic background, you're an educator, you're a surgeon, uh, your son Edward's a lawyer, and, you, you, and your roots go back to, as you point out, to poor Chinese immigrants. So you, you've seen a vast change. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we have seen a vast change, you see. I think uh, that is why I thought I'm going to put it down in a little book, you see. My grandfather, my grandfather came from China, you know, from Fukien, Southeast China, as with most of the immigrants to Southeast Asia. And at that time, as you know, the China was in a poor state, and uh, they were also sort of a suffering under the, I mean, the Western powers were there, you know, they took over Hong Kong and uh, Macau and uh, Shanghai, and there's a lot of discrimination, and they were followed by the Japanese, who overran the Manchuria and the northern part of China. And uh, so, old grandfather, little young boy, and in, uh, in, uh, in an impoverished Fukien, took a boat, a steamboat, as a cook, and came to this part of the world. Mm, my goodness. What, what a pioneer. What, what an adventure. What yeah, adventure. of course, yeah. So the first two parts of your book, more of a history, more of, a, of, of the world yeah. civilizations and, you know, how, how this has all come about there, uh, especially some uh, focus on you know, the cultural heritage, uh, Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, and the importance that plays in your culture. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I think uh, it is also important uh, to draw attention uh, to to give it a balanced view. We had to uh, give weightage uh, in a book to, to the development of Western civilization. Because after all, modern civilization is largely Western. So the discussion is not so much whether we're going to accept modern, but 
to what extent do we accept it? And is modern civilization sort of uh, evolving in a negative manner from now onwards? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it may, it may not be something that Singapore wants to embrace all parts of modern yeah. civilization coming out of the West. No, I, I wouldn't say not. I think some Singaporeans still do. I think there will be still, uh, there's still a minority there who, who believe uh, that uh, we should go all out to be Western in every way. Mm-hmm. But I think the great majority of our, our generation would continue to be comfortable as Asians at, in heart. But we, we can't say, I mean, with the passage of time, with the younger generation, we are seeing more and more Western influence in them. But uh, right now, like, there is still a considerable uh, retention of Asian culture and values, although we see it being eroded to some extent. So your uh, parts, let's see, three... To seven, they present more of a detailed case study on global yeah. on the global champion, as you say, Singapore, the global champion. So, uh, yeah. what are some of the case studies? Uh, give some examples of how you're helping us to better see Singapore emerging. Well, uh, I mean, basically, I think uh, it is perhaps well known, in fact, that. Uh, that uh, Singapore has been the ch- has been a creation, you know, of uh, people like Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. You know, he's uh, he's actually a Singapore lawyer who has been trained in Cambridge, you know, and he was our first prime minister. And I, th- I mean, he's he has got a strong political will. He has got vision, and. Uh, <coughs> And uh, without him, there wouldn't be a global Singapore, I think. So I think that point perhaps need to be emphasized. You know, because some, now I think some of the youngsters in Singapore don't, they've forgotten that, I think. They've forgotten our history. And part of the reason why I wrote this book is that Singaporeans should know a little bit of their history. <laughs> now, as to how Singapore progressed, the main idea is to, the initial idea of Mr. Lee, you know, Singapore was sort of uh, literally kicked out of Malaysia, you know, over racial issues, you see, being a Chinese majority city. Uh, within two years of uh, integration with Malaysia, within Malaysia, Singapore had to leave because uh, it would upset the, the racial balance of Malaysia. And uh, the PAP government under Mr. Lee Kuan Yew was agitating for uh, Malaysian Malaysia, in other words, a non-racial Malaysia. So that could have uh, sort of, so right, right now, the Malays are a minority in Singapore. And uh, I think it is easier uh, to sort of, uh, they, they have got different values. Uh, they, I think the Malays take life a little bit differently from the, from the Chinese who, who tend to work very hard uh, and uh, materialistic and studious, whereas the Malays are Muslims, 
and it, they take life more easily. What role? So, what role yeah. does government, as you know, from uh, that part of the world, is government uh, more important in building the future than the practice of democracy? How do you yeah. look at that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think. Uh, I mean, of course, there will be people who still think that you know who are agitating for more and more democracy. But I think, particularly older generation, uh, do not really see it like, as as the proper step. You know, I mean, you, uh, I mean, we can look across to the United States, for example, to Europe. You know, with too much democracy, without effective governance, you know, the country does not progress. I think. So I think, uh, particularly in Asia, uh, where we are just coming or coming up you know, the ladder, I think we need strong, capable leadership you know, and good governance. You know, with a divided kind of a government, you know, two different parties. Uh, like for example, the states, I don't, it doesn't seem that. Uh, yeah, two parties are getting together, you know. I mean, they're just trying to block the other party so that they'll win the next election, that kind of thing, you know. So it, it doesn't seem that democracy has not really lived up to expectations. And on paper, it looks excellent. Mm-hmm. But I think in practice, it is very difficult to practice. Particularly, you know, in, I mean, it, it is bad enough in the, in the, in the West, after one, two hundred years of democracy, what about the poor countries, the third world countries? You know, I mean, giving them democracy or, or fighting for democracy is not going to do these countries much good. You know? They're just going to fight and kill each other. And uh, it just goes on and on. So what we really require is an old-fashioned benign aristocrat, I think. Somebody who, autocrat, that's right, who can uh, sort of, uh, has got a vision, the will, to move forward, you know. I mean, a clean government, clean government. Singapore got rid of the corruption, you know, that's a big thing, I think. And the corruption uh, really eats like, into a country, you know. It, it, it erodes uh, efficiency, and uh, <coughs> it uh, creates a lot of divisions. So that is one of the biggest uh, problems of third world countries, is corruption. And the Singapore got, got rid of it, you know, pretty fast. Within 20 years, I think, they got rid of corruption. Well, co- corruption's live and well in the West, too, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think I think some amount of it still still uh, still exists in the West. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's uh, you you've got a great uh, philosophy and a vision, and this book, this not yeah, only a, a historical book, but a kind of a view of the future and what Singapore can become. Tell us, TK, how to get your book, Singapore and Asia, TKT. Yeah. How do we get your book? Oh, the book? Well, uh, it is uh, published by Libraries. 
And, uh, well, I mean, I bought some books from them, but don't buy from me. Buy from Libris. <laughs> right. Ex Libris, you can buy it there. And of course, you can go on to Barnes & Noble and and other online retailers like Amazon and, and uh, yeah. as for the book, TKT and his son, Edward SWT, uh, T is spelled T-I. You can get his book, Singapore and Asia. Uh, TK, thanks so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air, all the way from Singapore. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rock Star System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from the competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Druggynet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Slices of Life, and the author, Alpha F. Manning. And Alpha joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Alpha. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. This is your story from your life, collection of poetry, prose, uh, you look into all kinds of universal life experiences, your experiences, humor, death, grief, loss, family, love, failure, lessons learned, celebrations, travel, etc. So it, this, is a, this must have been something to write as you look back on your life. Yeah, it was. Um, what I did was to collect, I, because I've always written, I mean, even as a young girl, and I, was stick, I had a secretary in my bedroom, and I would stick my little writings in little drawers, all those little drawers, and uh, I lost many of those early ones, but I always wrote about my experiences. If I got angry, I wrote about those. <laughs> <laughs> if I was exceedingly happy, I'd write about that. If something unique happened uh, for the most part. 
Uh, sometimes my dad would make me angry. Sometimes my mom, I'd write, you know, messages like that. And I could tell that my dad had been snooping because he'd reveal what <laughs> some of the things I said about it. <laughs> but I've always loved to write, and that's the, the point. And so I gathered some of my old material and put it together. I said, oh, this looks interesting. Uh, and I added to it in more recent in more recent years, kind of updated. Well, you've had quite a career as a teacher and as a, an executive in the public, private, nonprofit areas. You've really uh, amazing amount of experiences. Yes, um, I guess I worked for over now over fifty years. Uh, I started out as a teacher. And that, in fact, is my favorite profession. However, no one could stick me in a classroom, not a traditional classroom today. Uh, it's very much different. In my day, when I first started, you could kind of take the kid where he or she was at that point and move them on. It's very difficult in today's world of test requirements to do that uh, because you have to push to get the kids to pass the test. You can't take care of a kid who's hungry and pay attention to that. Uh, talk to the mom about, you know, the different things. Or if a kid has had some kind of an obstruction at night because of, you know, a war going on in the home. Uh, so teaching today is very different, and teachers are expected to do, oh, so very much without very much support. You really believe in this village caretaker idea of raising children. It, it, of course, family at home is so important, but it also takes much more than just the family. Absolutely. And I grew up in a village. Uh, church was very important. And it wasn't the religious nature of the church or the biblical teachings. I'm sure they come through, but they came through in a humanistic, uh, very realistic kind of way. Um, they're very caring people. And I cannot imagine today that there, there were so many people who gave so much for so many years for the youth in our church. Uh, they took us on field trips. They took us shopping. We had a lady, Mrs. Nams, uh, who just seemed to, seemed to love young people. And so she'd go to Jacksonville to shop. She'd go to Thomasville to shop. She'd go to Atlanta. And she'd take a few of us with her. Uh, every spring, they took us to Bach Tower down in the Lake Wales area. And every summer, we went to Edwards Waters College, which was a big deal. All of us piled into cars, uh, rode over there, stayed in the dormitories. And every few years, we'd go to the National Conference. So they gave us lots of different experiences. And the minister and his wife, who had no children, took us on as their children. And she, every time we had choir practice or drama practice, they turned the basement into a, a, a teen center for the kids at church. And uh, she'd bring over this platter of cookies with, a, with glasses of milk. And so, anyway, uh, it gave us lots of fond memories uh, to carry with us and lots of good, good teachings and lessons learned throughout the years. Your book is divided up into different sections. One is daily living, another celebrating family. Then there's love, friendship, loss and grief, spirituality, travel, and aging. So obviously, uh, again, as your, as your title says, slices of life. And it's quite a potpourri. Yeah, it is. But life is a potpourri. Uh, and so it's reflective of life. We can't really um, segment life like that in reality because any, on any given day, all of those things could explode and happen. 
uh, or you may be lost in um, in grief for one day or a week. So we can't catalog it that way, but for convenience purposes, I you know, segmented the book in that manner. One that stands out, Another Chance at Life. Uh, tell us about what happened there. Um, Another Chance at Life is about my having gone through uh, a medical, uh, I tried to find that in my book, uh, my having gone through a medical, having to go through a medical procedure, um, which I thought was life-threatening at the time. I went in for uh, a CAT scan, and uh, and I had to, anyway, I, I wasn't quite sure what would happen. It was just my, just my kind of my, my regular thing. Somehow, I, um, the doctor came in after, after having seen my test and said, uh, well, things look fine. But somehow it seemed, I, I knew that that wasn't the end of the conversation. It ended up that, uh, I had, uh, a cancerous polyp. That the polyp he had removed, one of the polyps he had removed was cancerous. Luckily, I had gone early to get that examination. It was, for me, I guess I put myself in other people's shoes. It never, I never imagined that I would be given that kind of news because um, these things were just procedural. I just did them to prevent. And, of course, um, colonoscopies are great ways to prevent colon cancers. I couldn't imagine because I'm less emotional in terms of showing it than most people. I seldom break down and cry, even in the, you know, I'm, I'm the person you want around when, when things are, are very tragic and you know, the world is all awry. But I found myself shedding tears. And I'm asking myself at the same time, kind of standing back from myself, why are you doing this? This doesn't necessarily mean what it meant that there was something dire in my, you know, in my future. Uh, because of the way that had gone, I was, um, I ended up having to have uh, kind of dramatic surgery um, that would have been, that was much more extensive than it would have been had things uh, gone differently in the diagnosis and uh, uh, the treatment earlier. But that's, that's kind of life. And um, I found it to be a very useful experience for me. Uh, it helps one to think back to and to, to, to regard the things that you feel are important to begin to play out what the future might be. Uh, as it turns out, I was fine after the surgery. And uh, that helped me to think about the rest of my life. And I, I'm sure that everybody who goes through an experience of that nature also reflects on their past as well as what they want their future to look like. Well, I'm sure it did. It's a, one of those shocking, shocking experiences of life, but it is what it is, and you somehow have to move forward. And, and of course, you're sharing a lot of innermost feelings with us you can you say that we ought to think of our lives as a book or movie. That's a that's an interesting approach. <laughs> because we actually, if we can be, I, I think about you. Just you mentioned that you interviewed earlier a thirty-year-old. If that thirty-year-old can be as intentional now 
as she will be at 60. Boy, what a wonderful life. Because we can intentionally make things happen. We don't have to rely on things happen ac- happening accidentally. Uh, but most of us don't think about that. And sometimes it takes just takes experience to get to the place that you need to be. For example, empathy. Uh, I, I believe most things can be taught through experience. Uh, but many of our kids don't get that. Uh, opportunity, uh, or parents don't see that as an opportunity to teach. But as we experience life, we will have losses, we will grieve, we will see humorous situations, uh, we will witness illness, and we may also be ill ourselves. And all those things will help to shape our lives. Uh, if we can think about that up front, we can create the book or the movie we want it to be like. Now, it won't always pan out the way absolutely you want it to be, but uh, it would certainly be more of, of what you would like it to be. Please share with us one of your poems. Well, I would gladly do that. I have to find a short one. This one's called I Treasure You. I can't imagine life without you. I want your advice, your friendship. I trust you with my private thoughts, things I've never considered discussing with others. I fluidly and without reservation discuss with you. I seek your advice and counsel. I treasure your candid and sometimes humorous answers. Although I wish you'd slow down, take on less, give less at the store, and give me more of you, I admire and deeply respect your commitment and dedication, your contributions to developing and advancing your cause. You truly make a difference. I've learned a lot about living from you, and I treasure every lesson. Is that about your late husband? Yes. Very well said. Very nice. Uh, a real tribute to him. Well, thank you. Now, th- this whole issue of aging, this is something that we really need to address. Absolutely. I left that for last. <laughs> <laughs> I call it living elegantly, aging gracefully. Because I don't think aging need be something we dread. I think it's something, but when I go back to, let me go back to the point of uh, your life being a book or a movie, because as we age, we begin to realize that we have perhaps lived longer than we will live in the future. And so we begin to reflect on what has happened in the past as we chart our future. And I think it's at that point when one realizes that he or she is aging that you begin to chart the future more intentionally. So I don't think, I think aging can be a very freeing, loving time in life uh, and that one can enjoy that process. You have given at the store, you have, you know, you've raised your children, you may have grandchildren, um, you've done all the things perhaps that you want to do and maybe there are some things you still want to do and now you have the time to do them and perhaps the resources. For many, that is not the case. But you can, you can make it more of what you want it to be uh, in, your, in your aging process. Surely we will have uh, physical changes, um, and we will see things differently, but we can control many of those physical changes by eating right, uh, by exercise, uh, and certainly our mental state can be significantly enhanced through friendships and uh, people ties 
and experiences. So if one travels, it doesn't mean you have to go to China or to India or to Alaska. It means that you might travel to the next town. Uh, there are always lots of different things. We used to spend most of our weekends going to festivals. You know, we'd look up, you know, where, where's the festival uh, here or there, in addition to the long-term travel. But uh, one, can, one can make that a very joyful and intentional experience. Uh, and, and those kinds of experiences with our friends, with our family, and the strong ties and binds that we have will help to comfort us during those years. Living elegantly means doesn't mean that you have to have lots of money to make that happen. It could be paintings from your kids, but you take those things that you love and you surround them, surround yourself with them in your house, uh, and that's a very inexpensive way of doing it. Uh, so that when you sit in your living room or your family room, you see all those things that mean so very much to you. They are representations of the love that's out there and the support uh, from all those folks that you know and are close to. And so I see uh, aging as a very positive process, one that we can definitely influence. Well, very well said, very well said. Alpha F. Manning, she is the author of her book, Slices of Life. Alpha, tell us how to get your book. My book can be purchased from through Amazon, through Barnes and, Barnes and Noble, and through Ex Libris, the book publishing company. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.